So in life, we find ourselves in quite a predicament. We have a potential in our lives to realize something that's unfathomable. We also have this mind that continually is deceiving us, confusing us. Many times we don't see clearly, and it's not always based on bad intent, not always based in something aversive or desirous, but just simply not seeing clearly. What we can find is that we get really trapped within our misperceptions, are not seeing clearly, and we get confused, and then we find that we start doing things that hurt others, hurt ourselves, and it just becomes more and more painful. We find that we're not living from the wisest place within. And I know that in my own life, um, I first began doing other practices that uh, I think I've shared with some of you that, you know, at times there was great joy in it. Uh, at times, the sense of the heart soaring, flying, and then coming crashing down. And then, in one such moment, there was this crashing down, and the thought arose, not much wisdom here. Fortunately, I'd already been introduced to Vipassana, or insight meditation. And that was what I found calling me. And Vipassana itself is a wisdom practice. It's a practice to help us to see clearly, to help us come out of this confused way of living that we have. Through Vipassana or insight meditation, we come to see things in accordance with the way things are. And out of this, it translates into a life that, even on the relative level, we can live with the wisdom of how things are. Ajahn Chah, a Thai forest monk, probably many of you have heard of, he says, we are practicing to reach the old mind. This original mind is unconditioned. In it, there is no good or bad, long or short, black or white. But we are not content to remain with this mind because we don't look at and understand things clearly. And then he went on to say, The nature of the original mind is unwavering. It is tranquil. We are not tranquil because we are excited over sense objects, and we end up as slaves to the changing mental states that result. So practice really means searching to find our way back to the original state, the old thing. It's finding our old home, the original mind that does not waver and change following various phenomena. It is by nature perfectly peaceful. It is something that is already within us. The Buddha described 
very well the path back to this old thing. He described it by way of the Noble Eightfold Path, in which he describes three trainings. The first training, or where the path begins, is panya, or wisdom, learning to see things as they are, seeing into the truth of this body-mind experience. Out of this, we have a right understanding of life. And then we find, if we understand the way of things, that we become motivated to act in a way that reflects the honoring of the nature of things, that our intentions in life become noble. We begin the path with wisdom. We have some sense of possibility. But this wisdom is only enough to get us motivated. Our understanding in the beginning is not into the nature of existence. We may have glimmers, moments of recognition, touching into a sense of possibility, but it's not the place out of which we live our lives. And so we have to work. We have to work with how we live our life. Then this leads into the second training, that of sila, or virtue. It's where we understand the value of living a life of non-harming, where we live in an ethical way that's respectful. And this begins to allow the true beauty of the heart to shine. If we live an ethical life, we find it becomes a foundation for training the mind because we aren't continually caught in regret about things we've done, agitated by experiences, um, that there is, comes a balance in the mind out of which we can train the mind, cultivate. And we do this through mindfulness, effort, and concentration. When I was thinking of the Buddha speaking about the Noble Eightfold Path, I had this image of him as if he was sitting at the top of a mountain. And from up there, he has a good view. His view comes from understanding. And looking down the mountain, he knows the terrain that was covered in order to reach this view, and he can see the most direct, skillful way to climb the mountain. And this is what he was imparting to us when he gave the teachings on the Noble Eightfold Path. I have found it really helpful to have some basic understanding of the Eightfold Path. And I'm not going into the whole Eightfold Path tonight. Um, I'm actually really wanting to speak about right view itself because I have found it to be so valuable, so helpful. Because right view helps us to give a context to what it is we're doing, and 
the direction that we can turn our minds in in order to see things in their nature, in order to have this understanding that releases the heart from suffering. I've found that right view helps to give a context to the work that we're doing here, to our lives. And, you know, I, I can see that context can be very helpful. You know, it, it, can, it you know, can be a conceptual understanding that simply points the mind in the right direction, gives a framework. If we don't have a context, sometimes we will feel so lost. You know, I realized this one day when I was looking at this young baby that was in pain. And the baby was just screaming. And I realized that probably in that moment, all the baby knew was that suffering. It didn't know anything else, had no context for what was happening. And so it was overwhelming. We can understand context too by looking back to when we maybe sat our first retreat. Sometimes first retreats can be very challenging. Sometimes we have beginner's mind and you might need to look at your second retreat. But remembering a retreat that you were sitting and you began sitting and you were so sleepy, you could barely stay awake. You know, you're just bobbing and weaving. Uh, and then restlessness came when you started to wake up. And then you were caught in desire, aversion. Oh, and then you couldn't stand it and you thought, this, is, this practice is no good. And then somebody teacher in the retreat started talking about the hindrances and it was like whoa you know I know from giving talks on the hindrances to beginners that sometimes when you start talking about it there's almost an audible sigh of relief in the room that that there's some sense being made out of what seems incomprehensible and sometimes our life just seem incomprehensible it's hard to make sense of it. But the Buddha helps to give a context. And the context here, to me too, there... Now, just a few minutes ago, I was talking about how sometimes we don't see clearly. One of the things that the Buddha saw when he was sitting on the top of the mountain just using that image, was that from the bottom of the mountain, you could really easily misperceive things. And what happens in this confused life is that we are continually misperceiving things, and then we believe it to be true. We believe it's the way it is. So I found, like in using this image of the Buddha on the top of the mountain, he was saying, you may not be seeing it clearly right now, but if you turn your mind in a certain direction, you turn your mind towards what he could talk about as being ways that we get caught or things that are helpful to see clearly. You know, so first of all, on the beginning of the journey, it's kind of interesting because there is a sense of possibility 
But then we have to acknowledge, we have to see that what we keep seeing as true isn't. And so again, there's this kind of this mix of feelings, a sense of possibility where we have that inner resonance, know of something, but then having to be honest, having to look more clearly. When he talked about the not seeing clearly, he said that there were three levels of distortion, three levels that we commonly do not see clearly. One is to have a distortion of perceptions. All the time in our experience through the sense doors, perceptions are happening, experiences are coming. And many times we don't even see these perceptions clearly. This can be clearly seen if you have, like I have, some form of night blindness where walking outside, one can't see clearly. Walking down a path in the woods, one misperceives many objects. You know, to see a twig and to think it's a snake. To see a rock and think it's a crouching animal. And so many times in our lives, we don't see clearly. You know, it's like seeing something out of the corner of your eye and thinking that what you've seen is there, is what it is. Sometimes not seeing clearly these perceptions can cause lots of distress, can cause anxiety. I um, was practicing one time and sharing a room with a nun and it was a very small room. Whenever she would go to the bathroom, I, if I was dressing, I had to move out of her way. And so one day I'm in the midst of dressing and she's on her way to the bathroom and I move out of her way and continue mindfully getting dressed. And then a few minutes later, I look up and there's some, first of all, there's just the recognition of something being there. And then there's the scene of a bald head And then there's the thought, it's an alien. And then I screamed. (laughs) Of course, then I laughed when I realized what was really there. (laughs) And hopefully this is what can happen as we see that we're not always perceiving correctly. There's a, the second level of misperception is, is that of thought. That we have thoughts and we believe them to be true. This is really easy to see in Yogi Land. You know, the, the stories we make up about the people we're sitting with. That we decide, you know, what kind of background they've come from, which is conditioning the way they're behaving now. We decide, you know, what their life is like. We have all kinds of things we tell ourselves about this person. And then it can happen at the end of the retreat. We meet this person 
they open their mouth and we suddenly realize we made it all up. We do it a lot on retreat, that we build whole stories on this level of thought and then believe them to be true. And then what happens is that thoughts solidify into habits. And these habits start to form our views. And they become fixed, rigid. And they're all based on misperception. And yet we live our life as if they're true. Out of these distortions of perception, we take that which is impermanent, changing, to be permanent. We haven't seen it clearly. We take that which is unsatisfactory to be satisfactory. And we take that which is not self to be self. There's a fourth level that happens, and that is seeing the unlovely as lovely. We don't see clearly And so the world starts to solidify, to seem more permanent. We start to think that we can find lasting happiness in experience, in changing experiences, and solidify around a sense of self. And out of this distortion of perception, there comes immense suffering. So the Buddha, sitting at the top of the mountain, having to point towards what will help us come out of these misperceptions, what will help us to see clearly. In doing this, he first pointed to understanding the law of cause and effect. Understanding the law of karma. Someone once said, understanding this means you understand that you don't get away with anything. The Buddha talked about how what we turn our minds towards, what we plant seeds of, is what we will bear the fruit of. When we look into cause and effect, we begin to see that our words, actions, have an effect. Where we keep turning our mind, 
is what we will reap the fruits of. We can see in a very basic way in life that if we plant a carrot seed, we won't get a radish. In our lives, if we turn our mind towards that which is wholesome or helpful in life, there will be beneficial results. If we turn our minds towards that which causes pain and suffering, will perpetuate the pain and the suffering. There's a story about an old Cherokee. One evening, he was sitting with his grandson, and he told his grandson about a battle that was going on inside him. He said, My son, it is between two wolves. One is evil. It's anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. The other is good, joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. The grandson thought about it for a minute And then he asked his grandfather, which wolf wins? And the old Cherokee simply replied, the one I feed. We have a choice in our lives as to what we feed. We learn this in our practice. At first it seems like You know, things like anger arises, and maybe we get caught in it, struggle with it, fuel it. But then we learn the power of turning up, meeting the experience, not fueling it, meeting it with kindness. And we see that that has an effect. We see that we don't have to keep bumbling along, being propelled by that which causes more suffering. Our practice is such a good place to investigate cause and effect. Because many times, even though the law of karma karma is much broader, there isn't always an immediate effect. Many times in our practice, we can experience an immediate effect. We can see that if there is the state of anger and we fuel it, we can feel the impact of that. We can see if there is a moment of kindness, and maybe it's just a simple kindness, tenderness towards ourselves when we're struggling, that that helps the heart to soften, to be with, to open and accept. So 
so our practice will help us to see to see this law of cause and effect but in understanding cause and effect we also have to look deeper than an action itself because the law of karma rests on motivation no, and that there can be many times in our lives where we may do something that has the appearance of being wholesome, helpful, where maybe extending generosity to someone. But if in our motivation for that generosity, we're actually doing it so that we look good, so that uh, this person thinks highly or that we'll get something else back, it's not so wholesome. So we need to also pay attention to what's motivating us. And this is also very important on the level of motivation in our practice. Because as we sit here, if we sit down and we just want to get into some pleasant, calm state and pushing away other experience, we're motivated by greed, by wanting something. And if, you know, every time we do this, uh, we're strengthening the seed of greed. In our practice, if we sit down and we're wanting to get rid of things, we're strengthening aversion. If we're practicing with the wrong attitude, we're strengthening delusion. In my own life, I have found a deepening understanding of the law of cause and effect to be very empowering. And what has seemed odd to me is that the times it's felt most empowering is when I've done something that seems really stupid, idiotic. But in the doing of that, when I sit, and at times I have actually used the phrase of equanimity that points towards this truth. And the phrase is, uh, I am the owner of my own karma. My happiness or unhappiness depends upon my actions and not upon my wishes. What I found when I said that phrase to myself It was like a moment of being really honest, really frank, and okay, this is the way it is, and I will live with it. I will take whatever consequences come from having done something that maybe hurt someone or hurt myself. And it felt empowering, you know, because otherwise we're skirting around this. And, you know, we may do things on the sly, but this law says we don't get away with it. So it really helps us to become honest in life.
I'd like to share from uh, a sutra of the wise and the foolish. And this is a book of teachings that are very similar to the Jataka tales. And this relates to karma. Do not take lightly small misdeeds, believing they can do no harm. Even a tiny spark of fire can set alight a mountain of hay. Even the smallest acts can bring great benefit. When we pay attention to cause and effect, it isn't all bad news. We see that, you know, as in a moment of unmindfulness, we can do something unskillful and there'll be repercussions. But in a moment of mindfulness, where non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion are present, even though it's only for a tiny moment, the benefit can be great. This law, understanding it, really helps us to live respectfully, respecting all life. And, you know, out of doing this, it's pointing our minds towards truth, understanding. This is from Upasakaki Nanian. She's a very, was a very inspiring lay woman in Thailand. She had a very strong interest in the Dhamma, and at one point in her life saw the opportunity to move to a small house in the forest. She moved with an aunt and an uncle, and she began practicing with strong determination. Became a uh, very well-known teacher in Thailand, and a, a practice center grew up from this house in the woods. She liked to write po- poetry, and this is from her book, Pure and Simple. With no struggling, no thinking, the mind still will see cause and effect vanishing in the void, attached to nothing, letting go. Know that this is the way to allay all stress. So at times we might need to be reminded that it is helpful to see this law, to come to understand it. So paying attention as we practice, paying attention to how we practice. If we're tight, forcing, what's the impact on our practice? If there's restlessness, the mind is agitated, what's the effect of that? If we stub our toe and anger arises, what happens if we meet it with kindness, mindfulness? Just paying attention. So we're not blindly sitting watching experience, but we're watching intelligently so that understanding can grow. Because when we really understand what leads to more suffering, 
when we see that for ourselves, the desire to keep perpetuating that will fall away. So the Buddha, pointing towards the law of cause and effect, the understanding of karma. When the Buddha was pointing towards what could help us find our way to the top of the mountain, he also spoke about the Four Noble Truths. I'm only going to briefly touch upon the Four Noble Truths tonight because there's another aspect of wisdom that over the coming days I will be speaking of, and that is the seeing of impermanence, the seeing of the changing nature of experience and how, because of that, there is a level of unsatisfactoriness um, that really, when we see it the way it is, is very insubstantial. But it's the, the what's called the scene of the three characteristics. And the scene of these three characteristics is what will help to free the mind. And so when I give that talk, those talks, I'm going to be speaking more about uh, dukkha, or suffering. And so tonight I'm just briefly touching upon the Four Noble Truths because they really help to give a context. So the first Noble Truth, the truth of suffering that there is dissatisfaction, that as a living being, there are some unsavory elements to life, and that in this life, we cannot always have things be the way we want them to. And yet, much of our lives is spent denying this, trying to cover it up. I always think that the day that I grew up in was the Barbie doll generation. That, you know, as a child, that was the, that was the model that was put in front of me, was this beautifully formed Barbie doll who had a nice smile on her face, who had the perfect boyfriend, Ken. And so, you know, out of that came up this idea that one should always have a happy face. One should not acknowledge the, the unsavory aspects of life. That uh, it was something to be glossed over. And so as a result, when one would hit suffering, one would think that one had done something wrong. Things were not the way they should be. I only recently heard this story of a, I think she was a woman in her 80s, and she went to the hospital with her husband, who was 91, and he was dying of cancer. And she was standing in, uh, checking into the hospital, 
you know, screw, or wailing out loud about she didn't understand why this was happening. He had been healthy his whole life. We forget that, you know, there's just some things as human beings that are unpleasant. You know, just the karma of having a body. When we're really caught in the truth of suffering, or we're caught in suffering, we're not seeing, we're personalizing it. And we're not seeing it simply as suffering. We think that something is wrong. Something needs to be changed. In your practice, sometime when you're in pain, whether it's physical or emotional, notice what it's like to say, I am suffering. And then see if there's a change when you say, this is suffering. So the Buddha pointed towards the truth of suffering. There is suffering. There is dissatisfaction. And the understanding of the first noble truth is to be able to see there is suffering and no longer personalize it. When we begin to be able to see there is suffering, then the mind kind of wants to know, well, why is there suffering? And so we look a little deeper. We look to understand what is the cause of this suffering. This I've been speaking about a little bit in the morning reflections. The Buddha said the cause of suffering is craving. And we can experience craving through desire for sense pleasure, wanting pleasant experience. We can experience craving through the desire for becoming or continued existence. And this can be uh, a sense of wanting to become something in our lives. Uh, as we practice becoming enlightened, uh, becoming a good yogi, becoming a happier person, and this is all relating to a sense of I. It's all self-referencing based upon a misperception. And we also see it when we identify with our experience in a moment where we take ownership of it in a moment where we define self or other. And then there's also the craving for non-existence, aversion, wanting to annihilate, get rid of, be free of, through pushing away. Often with 
desire, it is based in this not seeing clearly, mistaken perceptions. We don't see the dissatisfaction out of which the desire, the craving, the grasping is arising. We get enchanted by the object of desire. The Buddha likened it to a razor-sharp sword with honey smeared on the blade. And, you know, we go for that honey, but underneath it is that blade. Underneath it is something that is painful. And sometimes when we really pay attention to desire, we see this. We see how painful it is. You know, sometimes in practice you see it arise over and over and over again. You know, this wanting, ah, ah. You know, just as if you're grasping onto experience moment by moment. And that there's no satisfaction in it. Sometimes we have the illusion of satisfaction. We might get something that we want. And for a moment it seems like, things are good. There's a happiness. If we pay attention, we might actually see that part of that happiness of the moment is being free of the state of desire. Buddha said that craving is to be abandoned. But we can't abandon it willfully. We can't will ourselves to let go. We can't will the mind to let go. It doesn't work like that. Because we find things just come back. But when there is true understanding, when we have felt the fire of desire and know how deeply it burns, letting go happens. This is again from Upasaka Ki Nyanyan. She says, If you truly want to gain release from suffering, you have to practice truly. You have to make true effort. You have to let go, starting with outer things and working inward. You have to free yourself from the delusion that falls for alluring delights. The important point in letting go is to see the drawbacks in whatever you're letting go of. Only then can you let go once and for all. If you don't see its drawbacks, you'll still be attached and will miss having it around. And that's what happens. I've seen it in my own mind where I might have forcibly let go of some possession and then later miss having it around. But when we see the drawbacks when we understand this in our own experience, this letting go is natural. You know, it's very much like that leaf falling from a tree. Something this has pointed to in my own life is a sense of not being afraid of the suffering. 
Because when we are feeling that flame of suffering, we're coming into a clearer perception of what happens when we don't see clearly and then live our life from that place of unclarity. It's, we want to make sure that we're not suffering for the sake of suffering, but that we're suffering. We're allowing something to be uncomfortable. But we're there with mindfulness. There, we're there with investigation. We're there to come to understand from this experience. And that doesn't mean that we go around doing things that will create suffering so we can learn, because it happens anyways. But when something is uncomfortable, rather than trying to, running, shying away from it, to whatever extent we can, looking, What's the mind grasping right here? What's, what's the hook? What's, where are we stuck in this moment? And using mindfulness to do this. So the second of the Four Noble Truths, understanding the cause of suffering, craving. And the Buddha said, this is to be abandoned. And we abandoned through understanding. This leads to the third Noble Truth, the cessation of suffering. One description he gave of this is the final quenching of all things that are ablaze. It's the cooling of the mind from this heat of attachment. another description, but it's lost somewhere. (laughs) Anyhow, so the cessation of suffering, sometimes described as non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. That which is unborn, uncreated, The Buddha, in his wisdom, didn't give a lot of descriptions. Because what we find with the cessation of suffering is it's non-conceptual. And we have such strong habits of trying to 
live in the conceptual world and trying to figure out, you know, that we hear some description of the cessation of suffering, and then even though we might hear it's non-conceptual, the conceptual mind tries to figure it out, tries to fabricate the experience. And so the Buddha didn't give a whole lot of descriptions of the, the cessation of suffering. But he did point to the way that this could be realized. And this is where he laid out the Noble Eightfold Path. I think in looking, you know, kind of on a practical way with the cessation of suffering and having some sense of possibility around it, to notice the moments in our practice, in our lives, where we are not caught in the grips of wanting, of craving. You know, where for a moment we are freed from this force. We find that through the exploration of the cause of suffering, the understanding of it, the mind naturally opens to the unconditioned. So the third truth of suffering, the cessation of suffering, it's the good news, and it's where it means that, you know, the Buddha just wasn't talking about suffering, that there is supreme happiness that's possible and that he was actually teaching a path of supreme happiness. In the fourth noble truth, it's where he points out the way, the path leading. And this is where I began my talk, with the three trainings. The training of sila, or virtue, where we work with right speech, right action, right livelihood, where we try to live in a wholesome way, skillful way. In this life, we also work with training our minds, cultivating the mind. We do this through the strengthening of mindfulness, effort, concentration, out of the training of the mind, we find this is where wisdom dawns. Through the training of the mind, we have moments of insight, of seeing clearly, of seeing the nature of things. So through right view, 
through paying attention in our lives to both the law of karma, cause and effect, through paying attention to the Four Noble Truths. And with these truths, it's not, just, it's not enough to hear them. We have to look at them in our lives, look at them in our practice, investigate them, come to know them. That this is the way that we can dispel these misperceptions that we have often based the living of our lives on. And through turning our minds towards this, we can see clearly. We can see things as they are. The Buddha encouraged us not to be discouraged, but to really apply ourselves in life and to cultivate joy. We find joy arising as we practice. And it doesn't mean that we have pleasant experience, but there comes a great joy from just knowing that we are turning our minds towards truth. That on some level, we have said enough. We want to see things as they are. we start to experience the benefits of the practice. And this brings joy. This brings happiness. And then, as we experience the benefits of the practice, we realize we have no choice. That to fall back into living in this world of misperception is not okay. We can't do it the pull of truth becomes strong. And with this can come a lightness of heart. I'd like to share a close with a poem tonight from a Chinese Buddhist nun who lived in the 13th century. Her name was Miozan. And there's not so much known about her, but she was apparently famous for calligraphy. In the shade of two trees and the hanging green of the cliffs, one lamp for a thousand years broke open the dark barriers. I, too, now realize that phenomena are nothing but a magic show and happily grow old among the mist, the rivers, and the stones. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.